Welcome to another episode of Inside Startup Investing. As always, I am your host, Chris Lestrino, founder and CEO of King's Crowd. Inside Startup Investing is the number one podcast for learning about the best startups and investors in the online private market. If you are a startup investor, this is a show for you. This podcast is powered by King's Crowd's proprietary rating technology that helps us to uncover the best founders and stories that you need to hear about before clicking invest. Now, before we get started, we want to thank our sponsor, LawCloud, the premier solution for founders to prepare to raise capital online. Whether you need to file a Form C, a Form 1A, or a subscription agreement, LawCloud provides the lowest cost, easiest to use toolkit for founders to make raising capital online easier than ever. Now, on to today's show. Today, I am joined by Jesse Randall, who is the founder and CEO of Sweater. Um, many of you may already know his name. He has a really, really interesting company that I am a big believer in and is taking another dramatic step in really helping to democratize access to the private markets and in a new and inventive way that I'm pretty psyched to, to discuss here today. Um, he also is a great, great follow on LinkedIn. So if you are not following him already, I highly recommend that you do. He's got some great insights coming out of there as well. So with that, we'd love to throw it over to Jesse. Jesse, thank you so much for being here today. Chris, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I, I would just love to know a little bit more about your background and how you kind of came to Found Sweater. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I, I fell into startups about 15 years ago when I was in my undergrad and um, had no idea what I was doing. Fell in love with the whole idea of, of taking something that's in your, in your head and in your heart and turning it into something real. And uh, that had kind of a tragic ending because of the financial crisis in 2008, um, which gives me a lot of empathy for what that founder journey is like. And over the, the coming years after that, I, I just couldn't stay away from the community. Uh, despite going to graduate school and other things, I just felt like I was very drawn into this world. I ended up working for a startup accelerator that raised a venture fund. And um, I left right when they launched it um, because they went through the whole fundraising process while I was there, got to see kind of behind the scenes. And after I, I left, I kind of watched that fund not do so well. And I saw some of the mistakes that were made and I thought, you know, I could start a fund. Uh, you know, I've worked with hundreds of companies in this environment, and uh, I could I could go after this. And as I got into those conversations with some potential anchor investors for the fund, it became very clear that I wouldn't be allowed to invest in my own fund because I was not an accredited investor. And I thought that was pretty absurd because I was the person running the fund. How could I not put money in my own fund? Um, and I was mostly curious. Uh, part of my graduate work was in policy. And I wanted to dive in and understand where accreditation laws really stemmed from and the context that those laws were passed in, because that's really important to understand. And as I, I dived into that history, it goes way back to the 1930s, 1940s. And uh, I didn't like what I found. The, the underlying justification effectively says, if you're not wealthy, then you're probably not smart enough to understand this complicated financial stuff. And we need to protect you. And it was so condescending to me when I first read that. I was like, wait, I'm in that category and all these other smart people I know are in that category. This is archaic. And like, maybe it fit in the 1930s and 40s, but today it's, it's a different world. And I just that lit a fire in me and I, I wanted to, uh, to change it. And so that started a whole journey uh, for Sweater. That was about five years ago. Wow. So let's start. First off, absolutely love the background and the fact that you got into all of the accredited stuff and understanding it because 
it is so antiquated, out of date, and needs to be addressed in like such a major way. So I'm glad that you understand where the problem really stems from. Um, but let's talk about what you're doing at Sweater to try and help solve this issue of not being able to access the traditional private markets if you're not wealthy, quote unquote, smart. Mm -hmm. So you're talking like broadly, like kind of what some of the avenues are? Yeah, we're, what, what is Sweater's mission? What are you guys up to and trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. I mean, our, our objective is to open up the venture-backed asset class um, across the board to everyone equally. Um, you know, of course, we have a soft spot for unaccredited investors. And I mean, I, I come from uh, a farming community in, in Idaho. You know, like I, I definitely have a soft spot for the everyday person to come and be able to make their own decisions with their own money. Um, but we service everyone, you know, and we, we want to feel we want the venture backed uh, asset class to feel more like the stock market where anyone can come in at any level and they can put in $500. They could put in 5 million or 500 million. Right. And, and be able to access that with, um, you know, similar barriers, I suppose. Right. And, and similar risks. And so that's the objective. And, and the first real section of that that we've tackled is creating a fully managed fund that people can put money into. And that fund is managed by us. Uh, it's delivered through a mobile experience. Um, you know, most venture funds have a you know quarter million or five hundred thousand dollar minimum investment, and ours is five hundred dollars. Um, there's actually liquidity built into it, so you can access your money uh, in increments every six months if you wanted to. Um, and it's all professionally managed, and it's only uh, venture backed companies. So VCs are involved in all the deals that we do. And so that's that's really the first step into it. But we're also stepping into direct deal making as well. And we're going to be launching a sponsored SPV program here very shortly, as well as the future of helping others actually spin up their own funds and either be within our ecosystem or, or out on their own. Uh, because we believe that a rising tide lifts all boats. And the faster that we can get these communities um, you know, familiar with this type of asset and approach, the better it is for everybody. And then let's talk about that last part that you were mentioning. You're saying that you'll actually enable other people to be able to make funds as well? Yeah, so we're, we're putting together um, a package where basically a partner could bring their own deal flow, their own investment committee, um, and then we would bring everything else behind it. So like to actually operate one of these funds. Because I mean, registered fund, and, and we could talk about that if you want, but the registered fund structure that we have is somewhat complicated to operate. I mean, it's the equivalent of being a publicly traded entity without actually having your shares publicly available to trade uh, out on open markets. But like the same level of scrutiny and um, and oversight and auditing and all that kind of stuff is very similar. So we would provide all of that back end stuff. And then, wow. you know, whoever wants to run the fund just kind of layers on top of that. That is a really, really cool concept. And, and so essentially you're creating the operating system for anyone to be able to offer venture fund products to a broader audience and enable anybody to be able to invest in those and have really easy access to the venture fund asset class. That's really powerful. Um, in, yeah. Get into some of the challenges that you have faced in doing that, because I do know that it is incredibly challenging with how the rules are written today. So what are the hurdles that you've had to jump through to make this possible? Uh, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version, because it, <laughs> took, it took four years from the time that we started this journey until we actually had a fund in our hands that we could take money from the retail public. Um, and it, it was a long and arduous path or, you know, I don't know, it might be silly, but it's like, you imagine those first explorers that like went into the Western United States and there's no paths, there's no maps, there's no nothing. I mean, that's kind of what it felt like, like nothing 
around this stuff is documented in the SEC. And like, it seemed like everyone was like, yeah, you know, it seems like that's really possible and it kind of fits in like this, but I don't really know what to do. And, and I suggest that you talk to someone at the SEC before you try to file anything. Otherwise, you might just burn a half a million dollars and not get anything. And it was like, okay, yeah, I don't, I don't want to burn half a million dollars on a registration of a, of a guess, you know, that we go after. Um, and so we, we started the hunt to try to find someone at the SEC, and it took forever. I mean, uh, we finally found someone that could uh, take us to the right people. Uh, and by the time we found them and actually got an audience with the right folks, it took two and a half years for us to have that conversation. But it was, it was super enlightening, honestly, because we found out that they had been talking internally at the SEC for years on how to provide broader access to the venture-backed community uh, for, for the broader public. And um, we were very warmly received. And so it was, it was good overall. It just took forever, you know, and then it's expensive. So um, one of the kind of mind benders in, in the sweater uh, context is that we are also venture-backed. So we are a venture-backed venture capital fund. And the fund itself, um, the Cashmere Fund, is completely separate entity from the venture-backed fintech company that Sweater Inc. is. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it, it was quite a path to get there. And, um, you know, now that we know it, it's it's repeatable, which is great, you know, and, and we want more in the ecosystem to help normalize this very accessible asset to diversify, you know, everyday people's portfolio. And I'm pretty sure you are truly the first company to do this, right? Be the first one to create a retail investor fund definitely the first one to get it directly in the hands of the broader public. Um, this fund structure has been out there in a couple of different contexts. It's mostly used in real estate and we're adapting it from that illiquid asset to a, you know, private venture backed company, illiquid asset, you know, and there's some other kind of out there, but we're the first ones to take it to the broad public for sure. Very cool. Now let's get into some of the dynamics of the fund that you've launched the cashmere fund. So what does that look like? Is there a certain investment thesis? What types of companies do you go after? Are you typically looking for a VC lead before that you'll come in? How does that kind of work? Yeah, so uh, our thesis, first of all, is a company has to qualify as being venture backable or venture scalable, however you you look at that. So it's basically got to be able to get big enough to you know, make a big impact on the fund. We're not investing in you know local companies or you know, individual products that can't expand into an entire you know, a suite of products, things like that. You know? So that, that's first and uh, foremost. After that, we look at companies that we call uh, that they're consumer touching. So uh, it's anything that an everyday person might encounter in their life, uh, whether at home or at work. And so that can be all kinds of things. I mean, it's obviously consumer tech. Uh, we dip quite a bit into consumer products as well that have big scalability and good margins and the ability to distribute well. Uh, but it's also health tech. It's also a lot of B2B applications. You know, something like Slack is a really good example of a business context software that is broadly available. Um, and one of our, our most key assessments in that, uh, when we're looking at companies, whether or not they qualify, is can we leverage our member base to affect the outcome of this company after we've made an investment? Um, because our members have an aligned incentive to help the company be successful because they have money in the company indirectly through us. Uh, and so as we examine that, we want to make sure that we can impact the company. So if, if we can't move the needle, then, you know, it's probably not a good fit for us because we want to be able to add a lot of value well beyond wh whatever the investment is. Uh, and this is something that's really unique to Sweater and something we're building a lot of technology around is to create a very powerful and tight-knit community that we can actually put to work uh, to affect the outcomes of the companies. That's so unique. Like literally no other venture fund could provide that because 
they're inevitably two to five people, right? They're small organizations. So to have a community of investors and backers, that's a really, really powerful thing. We, we've seen it as a business. We have 4,000 investors. A lot of them have become a customer with us in one way or another. Um, and it's been a huge revenue driver for our business. So I definitely see the value of being able to do something like that. Um, so I know that you launched, frankly, not that long ago, right, to the general public. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about what that experience has been like actually going live and some of the milestones and things that you've hit over the past several months. Yeah, it's been an amazing experience. Um, you know, we uh, leading up to it, as we went through the SEC registration process, we started a wait list of, um, of folks who were interested in what we were doing. And that wait list ended up growing to about 70,000 people, uh, which was awesome and exciting. It was, it was a highly engaged group. And as we got the uh, the approval, um, we had built the technology in concert with going through the uh, the SEC registration process. And so as soon as we got it, we were able to launch. And uh, it was amazing to to see so many people come in and um, and believe in the mission and, and move some money into this asset class. So since we've launched, I mean, it's been about nine months now since we officially launched. Um, you know, we've got over 5,000 members. We've already raised over $12 million. And with that, we've made about 20, I, I mean, depends on the official count, but uh, 26 or 27 investments. I believe we've announced 20 of them. Um, and we're off to the races. You know, it's uh, it's really been an incredible experience to watch people rally around us. That's amazing. And and what has been your kind of sourcing mechanism for finding deal flow? Because it sounds like you're doing almost like two a month at this point. Yeah, no, deal flow is, is plentiful and it's it's really high quality too. Uh, because of the community aspect, uh, we've been able to attract some really high quality opportunities. Um, you know, like within the companies that we've invested in already, um, there's just tremendous opportunity uh, within those. And so uh, our, our deal flow mechanism comes from three main sources. So we have monthly calls with about 50 VCs across the country that we're constantly sharing opportunities with and staying close to. Uh, about a third of our portfolio, maybe a little more than that, has come from our VC partners. Um, we've got a scout network that, that spans the country as well. So we've got 120 some odd scouts across the country that are always looking for opportunities and bring them back to us. And those scouts are, you know, everything from, uh, you know, fellow founders, uh, to software engineers, to specialists that, you know, kind of live and, and breathe inside, you know, more specific ecosystems. Uh, and it, it's a lot of fun. So we have a private Slack channel for that group where they can uh, you know, be educated and all that kind of stuff and stay close to us. Uh, and then otherwise people come directly to us. I mean, uh, unlike most venture funds, we very much uh, advertise a lot. Um, and that's for the cashmere fund primarily, but we really have our name out there. And so founders know who we are and we have an open door policy. Everyone can apply with, uh, with us. And, you know, we, uh, our promise is to always get back to everyone within a week uh, and make sure that they know where they stand. That is really cool. Um, and definitely appreciated in the industry, I'm sure by by founders uh, and being one myself, it's always nice to at least get a response. A no is as valuable to a founder as a yes, because it means you don't have to worry about focusing on that potential <laughs> pain uh, for the time. Yes, you should exactly and the drips and keep in touch, but then you don't have to worry about it. Um, that is really, really cool. So as you think about kind of moving forward, you know, plans for, for sweater and cashmere, you know, where do you, where would you like to see the organization call it in 12 to 18 months? I know we're in kind of a wonky time in terms of venture capital and technology and all of these things, which we can talk about, but where would you like to see the business kind of progress over the next years? Yeah. You know, I think it might be good to anchor it a little further out too. Um, so our, our five to seven year goal is to have a billion dollars under management across all these areas. 
um, you know, and we're going to push hard to get it. So, I mean, in the next year or two, like to your point, market's a little weird right now. And, you know, our, our objective is to, um, you know, maintain a really high quality experience for our members, keep our nose clean, you know, and make sure that as a, uh, as a fund that we are a highly trusted entity, uh, regardless of how many more people come in and, and how people are feeling about investing in new assets. So, you know, um, we, we'd love to have, you know, 50 to 75 million over the next year, year and a half in the sun, uh, and make sure that we continue to grow that base and, uh, expand the size and, and breadth of our, uh, of our portfolio as well. So, you know, we'll, we'll ride the tide wherever it goes, but, um, you know, the long-term objective is, is very firm. In some ways, in order for you to accomplish your goals, right, there needs to be kind of this mainstreaming of these new alt asset classes that were really never accessible, um, for a multitude of reasons, including the accredited rules, but also just like technology hadn't enabled them yet. Right. So now we have access to these asset classes. What are your thoughts and viewpoints on continuing to see, you know, the mega asset managers and, and whatnot start to adopt this and provide these types of solutions to their clients? Like, what is your thoughts on what the world will look like and call it three to five years? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is another place where I look very far in the future because it takes time for, you know, these, these trends to play themselves out. And so I, I tend to take a 10 year view and I often talk about 2030, but you know, it's like 2030, 2035. Uh, as the retail investor, I don't think that we're going to recognize the investment landscape, in my opinion, uh, because there's going to be so much optionality and so many proof points behind all these alternative assets uh, that are becoming available, uh, that the depth and the breadth and the confidence around all of these is going to be very much in the consumer's hands. Uh, and it's, it's going to be interesting and powerful and maybe even a little bit of... Uh, of caution that I would throw out as well, because there's going to be so much optionality that people are going to need to educate themselves and understand, you know, how they're they're building their portfolio and understanding that. So, in my opinion, you know, uh, by the time we're at 2030, I, mean, I think that most retail investors will be able to get into just about any type of asset class they want. There's going to be striations within those assets of what they can actually access within them. Um, and the, there's going to be a breadth of opportunities across all of those assets in terms of where, like who they could choose to work with in order to get into those assets. Um, and at that point it becomes a very different game of, uh, how you make the decision to, to build your portfolio. And it, it's something that Sweater's really passionate about is providing baseline education so that people understand how it works and that it's not just a shiny object that you're throwing money at but that you understand the basis of how the math behind it works. And, you know, you can participate and enjoy the journey and not just be blindly putting money into an asset. And my hope is that, you know, there's probably going to be more intermediaries out there that help to explain, you know, and guide consumers through all the optionality. But I think it's an exciting world and that, you know, for me, the ability for the individual person to be able to decide where they put their money to work and the amount of risk that they want to take is what is the ultimate objective. And I think that broadly will be there in, in about 10 years. We're definitely aligned on kind of this reinvention of the modern portfolio for sure. Um, and I, I'm glad to hear we, we have similar views there. Let's hop into some of the mechanics of the actual fund because I know our listeners are pretty cutting and, and really interested in, in how all of this stuff works. You had mentioned something earlier that I think is really cool, which is this ability on, I don't know if it's quarterly basis, and you could tell us that, um, where you can get liquidity um, of your stake in the fund. So can you talk about how you provide liquidity and what that looks like a bit more? 
Yeah. So let me provide just a little bit of uh, baseline context around how the fund works itself, because that will help explain how the liquidity works. So uh, the fund is, it's think of it more like a, a cousin to a mutual fund than to a venture fund. They invest in the same asset, but the back end operations of each of them are very different. So um, first of all, the, the cashmere fund, it, it's called uh, an interval fund. And that interval fund has a few different components. One of them is that the fund is evergreen. So we can raise money constantly and in perpetuity in the future, which creates a lot of unique dynamics. It's what allows us to market to the broader public and come in and buy in in any given period of time. Um, and it also allows us to do cool things like have a monthly subscription that people can sign up for. Um, so that's really important. The, uh, the way that the value is tracked is through what's called a net asset value, which is, again, the same thing that you would see in a mutual fund, um, where it's tracking the value of the underlying assets at any given time. It's not driven by supply and demand of coming in and out or anything. It's actually assessment of the assets. Um, and so when you come in, if as a consumer, it feels like you're buying a stock and you actually are buying units in the fund. So you come in today and I, I believe our NAV today is $20.59 or something. So you buy in today and in five years, you know, that's your basis. But in five years, it might be 27 or maybe 37 or whatever. Um, and you can feel how much you've made off of that, right? Just like as if you bought a stock. Um, and then, you know, within that, <clears throat> that's where the liquidity comes in because the, the NAV is what tracks over time and you can buy in every single day if you wanted to, but because these are an illiquid asset, uh, we are, the interval fund is designed to create these redemption windows every six months is the way that we're set up so that when you get to those windows, you can say as an individual, like, okay, I, I want to take some money off the table. Or maybe I want to take my whole position off the table and you can make that request. And um, whatever the NAV is, is what you're going to be bought out by. And it's the cashmere fund itself that is buying your position. It's you're not selling it to somebody else. So within that, right, you've got these opportunities to do that. Um, and there is a protective provision in place for the fund because these are liquid assets. And that is that we open up up to 5% of the value of the fund in any given window. Uh, but as an individual, you can request your whole position. We aggregate everybody's requests. If that aggregate is less than 5%, then you get whatever you asked for. If it goes above that, then we hand it out pro rata. So if uh, total requests were 10%, then you would get half of whatever you asked for, and you can come back in the next window and make another request. Um, and this is really unprecedented in, in the venture industry. Um, in a VC fund, I mean, you make a commitment to a fund, and the only way you get your money out is if there is an exit event. And, you know, that usually doesn't happen for five years or more for, for the most part. Um, and the fund won't close these days for probably at least 12 years. So it's it's quite a long haul um, in a traditional sense. And the fact that we provide these redemption windows is really, really unique. And we actually are getting a lot of attention from big institutional investors who are interested in that as well. How do you do the uh, the net asset value analysis? Oh, that's fun. Yeah, that's probably the most uh, important thing that we do. So um, we have some assets that are sitting in cash or cash equivalent. We have a sweep account with Goldman Sachs and some other stuff to take care of cash that's coming in the door. Our objective is to put that cash to work within, you know, 120 day window is kind of what we typically look at. Um, but we could technically hold it in cash for up to two years is what our prospectus says. So we have a lot of flexibility to do what we need to. Um, but within like actually valuing it, of course, the, our main objective is to invest in startups. And so as that money comes in, we have a you know, professional diligence process and deal flow that we go through to find opportunities and make investments. 
at that point, it's like we make an investment and it's dollar for dollar. Went from a dollar in cash to a dollar in whatever the asset is. And then we track that asset, that company over time. Um, and so there's two principles in terms of us valuing any given company. The first one is an anchoring principle, which is on day one, you know, we invest alongside another VC, set the price at, you know, $10 million uh, post money valuation for a company. And that's our, our basis. And then in the future, you know, they raise a series A in 18 months or 24 months. That's a new anchor point that was led by an institutional investor that maybe went from 10 million to 30 million. And so our position in that now just grew. And so that's an anchor point that was priced by an institution and we can do those markups. But in between, we also have to assess these companies uh, because the SEC um, and gap regulations with accounting don't like assets that aren't um, repriced over time. So we're given the discretion to assess every single company once a quarter and determine if they're on a positive, neutral, or negative trajectory, and then we can make micro adjustments as needed. Um, and we are very much incentivized to be very fair in that. And it's fair uh, on two sides. You don't want to be overpricing, um, and you also don't want to be underpricing because you have people going in and out of the fund. And so uh, this is a principle that we call stewardship. And this is, it's, it's the top thing that's, uh, that we always consider in every decision we make is making sure that for the members of our fund that we are being good stewards and that we're being uh, as accurate as possible in the way that we determine that nav. So we can make micro adjustments, you know, and it's like, we don't do anything crazy. Like some of our most recent adjustments were like, you know, five, 7% adjustments and what's going on. But when you look at the anchors, you know, and our investment could, you know, increase by 300% between funding rounds. So these micro adjustments are, are mostly an accounting measure for us to just make sure that we are on the right track and trying to be fair. But the biggest things come when there are, are new investment opportunities. So we have this whole process. We have someone that dedicates all their time to just valuations and fund operations. Um, and, you know, as, as the companies uh, go through this process, they all have a custom schedule and we're assessing them all the time. Yeah. When you have a really exciting event, right? Maybe there is a company that was valued at 10 million when you invested and they sell for a few billion dollars, right? A super outstanding exit event. Um, in that event, how does it work? Does all the cash just go back to the cashmere fund and then you, do you distribute almost like a dividend? Or is it just like now that's the new value of the fund is including all of those new assets that are in your bank account as cash now? How, do, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, so um, in those events, that would actually count as a distribution. So that cash would come back in. And then um, what we actually do is we, we track all of those events over the course of the year. And at the end of the year, they net out everything for anything like that that would have happened. And then everyone gets uh, a distribution based on the number of shares that they have in the fund. And as an individual, then you get to choose whether you take that off the table and you know bear the, the tax consequences of it, or you recycle it back in and put it back to work. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's two ways you, so those are the two ways you can get money out. So the primary one is to have these exit events, right? And then if you need to get your money out otherwise, then um, you can use these redemption windows. Really, really cool. Um, and then in terms of management fees, how does that work? Yeah, so as a registered fund, um, we're not allowed to take success-based fees. So the standard in the venture industry is this thing called a 2 and 20, which I know you're familiar with, but it's usually a 2% management fee and 20% carried interest, which is basically like a commission on gains on the fund that they don't get until typically until the very end of the fund. 
Um, and that's their incentive, the VC's incentive for making good investments. And so, uh, as they often say in the industry, it, it aligns incentives, right? That's me as a manager, I want to make great investments because I can get a payout at the end. But as a registered fund, this is one of the, the kind of compromises that's uh, within this fund structure is that you, you're not allowed to take success-based fees. And so instead, we have a flat 2.5% management fee um, that is, uh, again, very much like what you would experience in a mutual fund. And our incentive is to grow the value of the fund because our management fee is tied to that growing value. And so, you know, we're incentivized, but it's kind of in the back door. You know, we're not um, like straight up saying we're getting, you know, a 20% carry uh, at the end of all this. But yeah, we are incentivized to make sure we make high quality investments. Now, because it's an evergreen fund, I'm kind of curious to understand a little bit more about how, like, is there a cutoff point at which you say, hey, the fund is getting too big or the, it would be harder to get the same types of returns. We're actually going to create a new evergreen fund over here and let this one kind of phase out. Like, how do you manage those dynamics? Because, you know, once you get to a certain point as a venture fund size, you actually diminish the returns because it's too big to be able to achieve the types of returns you were getting. How do you manage that dynamic? Mm -hmm. Well, this is where we have a, a you know a very different kind of philosophy uh, when you come in. So there's a whole concept called large portfolio theory. Um, and the typical, so, so for the listeners that may not be super familiar with fund dynamics, what usually happens in a venture fund, let's just say it's a $100 million venture fund. The objective that they typically have is that they want to somewhere between, you know, 3x and 10x that money, right? It's a huge range. And there's a, a concept that they call power laws, which uh, gets into, you know, basically how one company could return the entire fund. And that's why VCs are, you know, quasi obsessed with investing in companies that can get big enough. Because if you don't have a big winner inside your portfolio, then you may not get a very good return profile. Uh, and so typically VCs, um, you know, they raise that hundred million dollars and then they've got about three years to deploy it. And they'll usually make, you know, between 15 and 30 investments is pretty typical. You know, some funds might get up to around 50, um, but that's pretty typical, you know, and then within that group, they need, you know, one to three winners that are just going to knock the top off, right? And and return 20x, 30x their money in order to uh, offset all the losses that went to zero, which is typically half the portfolio. They won't even get a dollar back on. So there's this dynamic that they play with. Um, and this idea of large portfolio theory is, is parallel to that. And it basically says, well, instead of investing in, you know, 20 to 30 companies, we're going to invest in two to 300 or maybe two to 3000. And what it does is it reduces the variability within the outcomes of the portfolio. And there's some really interesting studies. There's actually a brand new one that just came out about two weeks ago that dives really deep on this. And if you just think about like a bell curve, you know, uh, basically what it does is the VC's bell curve is very sharp and in the middle, you know, and returns um, very few funds return 10 X the money. Uh, most return around, two and a half to three X. And there's some losers that uh, losers around some that don't make it that don't return as much of the money. Um, but when you build the portfolio, the bigger it gets, the more it flattens that bell curve out and increases the likelihood that you're going to get, um, you're not going to have zero returns, but it also kind of cuts the top off and there's, it's unlikely that you would get a 10 X return. And that's the game that we're playing. So, you know, the, the cashmere fund is is going to be a fund that lives for a long time. We expect it to be around for 20 years. 
Um, you know, we have no intention of saying, well, we got to 100 investments and we're going to stop now and let's go spin up a new fund. Uh, it's a very different kind of mentality. Um, and there's a, a lot of benefits to the consumer for that. Um, and power laws still apply to us. You know, we're not ignoring them. We can't just go out and invest in anything. Um, you know, our objective is to still invest in companies that are, you know, at the 75th percentile and higher kind of performance on an individual company basis. It's still what we're looking for. But we're not like having to place all of our bets to make sure that, you know, at least one or two of these companies turn out to be unicorns and blow the roof off because our math is just a little bit different. So that's kind of a long involved answer, but you know, the, these oh, fights can live for a long time. A Absolutely. I appreciate the answer. And frankly, I think we need to see more of it across the venture industry. And it's probably where things need to evolve forward towards, because I think we're running into a reality here, which is like, there is only so many billion dollar companies that can be. Um, and frankly, there's too many funds out there chasing potential billion dollar companies when there's, again, only so many companies that are going to do that. But frankly, if you get into right price rounds, two, five, ten million dollar valuation rounds, and a 5x, 4x, 3x, that's still a really good return. If they become a 30 or 50 or 100 million dollar company, which is a lot more common, you could still do quite well. Um, so I, I think oh, exactly. seeing the world evolve, and I, I think there's a lot of value to it. Well, and I, I've said for a long time, you know, venture capital as an asset class worked really well before we knew anything about unicorns. You know, the unicorn was invented uh, by Eileen at Cowboy Ventures in 2014 when she wrote her first report. I think she identified like 27 unicorns, um, you know, that existed in the wild before anyone knew about them from like the whole decade before she wrote that article. Um, and then since then, I think there's been birth maybe 1,500 in the last decade now. You know, it became this arbitrary bar that everyone had to jump over. And, you know, in order to meet those types of um, profiles, companies stayed private longer, um, which required more venture funding, which created a whole new asset class of venture funding, which is growth, you know, uh, kind of the growth venture side of things, which raised obscene amount, obscene amount of money. And companies raised an obscene amount of money and you know, everything kind of got out of control and it, it's all being corrected right now. Personally, I would love to see venture work the way that it did between 1990 and 2014. I think it was good. Um, you didn't rely on billion-dollar outcomes. They were outliers, and it was amazing. But you could still build a great fund and have companies that only had nine-figure exits instead of 10 and 12-figure exits. That's just the reality we live in. That's <laughs> There are only so many billion-dollar companies. And one of the, uh, the jokes that I've recently been telling kind of friends and, and fellow investors is like, for some reason, CNBC still has to talk about the FANG stocks because we really haven't come up with anything bigger than those companies and better than those companies in like 20 years. Like maybe we're doing something wrong. Maybe we're approaching this whole thing a little bit wrong um, and we need to reset and rethink about how we think about these things. So glad glad to hear uh, all of your insights and, and thoughtful views on the industry. I absolutely love what you're doing. I'm a big fan of Sweater. For all of those listening, you can definitely go check out Sweater and sign up and become an investor in their fun product. Um, I think it's a really unique and exciting offering and definitely should be a part of people's portfolio um, and have a professionally managed investment portfolio in the venture asset class um, is a great thing to do from my perspective. I obviously am a huge believer in this. Um, but Jesse, thank you so very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. Love the conversation. Thanks so much for listening. As I mentioned, Inside Startup Investing is powered by King's Crowd. If you want to use the same tools I do to power your investment decisions, you can head on over to kingscrowd.com 
backslash startups to try out our Edge Pro Toolkit for 30 days free.